and welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. It is June, which means that it is Pride Month, y'all. Yes, yes, yes. We love our LGBTQ plus listeners, and we are going to honor those listeners and all of the LGBTQ folks out there with a LGBTQ themed episode. That's right. And, you know, but before we get into that, I think our spilling of the liberty this week Ooh. has to center around yeah, the a heavy only one. thing anyone's talking about yep. which are the um rallies the protests going on um against the racial violence and killings against black people in this country all and across the country all across the country it's um what really has come to a head is the racism that is institutionalized in the form of our police force. Yeah. Um, and that's what is really being the focus during these rallies. That's what um, everybody's very angry about. Everybody um, wants there to be reform. Um, and there's different forms of reform, which we can go into. True. Um, and different ideas of kind of what to do next, because obviously what we've been doing for the past hundreds of years has not been working right um and i think it's just it's a really interesting time to be alive because this is historical i mean there's yeah. no question that this is going to be in history books that's the someday. thing I, I saw somebody like somebody posted something where it was like you all realize that we're living through like a chapter of a future history book right now it's so true yeah. and honestly i think we have to make it really clear where we stand which is with um the black community it's just you know black lives matter and they more than matter matter is kind of the minimum um so i think it's important for us to express that black lives are important they enrich the rest of our lives they are part of the fiber of our society and part of our american population um, and granted, you know, there is a really mixed, complicated history by the fault of white European ancestors of ours mm -hmm. um, who, you know, used slaves in the form of black folks to build our economy. Um, and the seeds that were planted in the form of slavery have just grown and taken root and they still are alive today in the form of police brutality, um, racially charged violence, and the, the killing of black incarceration, people. Incarceration. Oh, that. mass yeah. incarceration, yeah. of course, which, um, you know, refers back to our last episode. Um, there just are so many ways in which racism. Yeah, the system is still kind of going, but just kind of a, under different names and terms now yeah and racism is just so entrenched in so many of our systems especially the police i don't know if you know this you probably do um i didn't admittedly know that um police weren't put into place just to keep us all safe and to make sure we obeyed <laughs> traffic laws and i think go i around, actually yeah, yep yep up for they were actually crime. supposed to protect the like bourgeoisie back then i think it was like a, a french implementation um that police kind of as we know them today the police state were set up to protect and uh, protect the upper class and ensure that that status was maintained and kind of oppress the peasants mm -hmm. and whatnot so it wasn't about protect and serve it was 
protect and serve in a sense of like protect and serve the royalty mm-hmm. and that's kind of where this whole mentality came from yeah the very very back history and what they were being protected from a lot of the time and by a lot of the time i mean i think originally all the time was slaves right um and a lot of the time policemen were um folks who were literally just out there their job was to make sure that they were capturing and returning runaway slaves so yeah you know there's so much entrenchment like we said of racism in the police force but it's so much more than that it's not just hey you know there's racism in the country hence there's racism in this big institution that we have that's very important in our country no police were actually born from the need to control and capture slaves that's crazy because Again, that's not that long ago, if you think about that. And so thinking about where that institution was born from in America specifically and kind of what their duties and, you know, what they were told to do on a day-to-day basis. That's crazy. Right. So it's really no wonder. I mean, as mad as people are at the police and as mad as, you know, I personally am at the police in this instance – it kind of can't be pinned on them, on individuals, so much as it is on the system in general. I mean, basically from the beginning, these police were given just a huge amount of power, huge amount of responsibility, especially once the war on drugs started cropping up in like the Nixon, Reagan era. They really drummed up support for war on drugs, drug-related crimes. That's a whole different like episode we could do there on the kind of system that set up. Right. Um, And, you know, what you had is these cops just being given an insane amount of responsibility, more so than they could ever really use to properly handle all of the issues that we have. And what we have now is a system where you have too few people, but they are given insane military-grade weapons, and they're told to fix yeah. kind of every problem from mental health issues to escaped runaway dogs to yeah. just, you know, street type um, transportation issues. I mean, and it's just it's too much. It's not logical. And, you know, as a result, you just have these, you know, poor attempts at trying to. Yeah, the system's broken. The system's much. broken. Yeah. yeah. And they have all this money. Money's been taken away from other institutions like oh, I don't know, education, health, you know, so that you have basically these poor, impoverished communities that don't have any resources, but their only public resource is the police. And that system, that resource is skewed against them in a lot of instances. Yeah, and there's a lack of trust there. And so this actually just reminded me now. So I took a class. I was hoping the class actually would be different in law school it was I forget the name of it but it was it was kind of the police state and it was um, looking into um, laws kind of concerning your local police interactions and whatnot and something I found really interesting was the switch over I don't know I want to say maybe in the 50s 40s 50s from um, community policing to even just it was just so interesting to think about, like, putting somebody in a police car driving through a neighborhood as opposed to them walking down the street and interacting with people creates a barrier right, with the community 
whether they live there or not, I think it's it's great if they were to live there and be able to um, police their own communities because right. it's reap their, their own neighbors. benefits. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's people they know. And they have skin in the game. To but keep even, their own neighborhood safe. But even if it's people that they don't, like, it was just so interesting to me to take a step back and think, like, wow, even just being in a car driving down the street as opposed to walking down the street creates a barrier between you and the neighborhood that you are policing. Right. And it, it just, there's so many small things like psychologically yeah yeah. that can just change the game yeah it's so interesting and i mean obviously what we need here is broad sweeping change um i think it's really hard for people to imagine what that would even look like yeah i've heard of two potential um kind of solutions i'd be interested in this yeah yeah and they're i mean you know you hear a lot of yeah a lot of kind of grand rhetoric and just these big ideas and you sort of think to yourself man is that even possible but um once they're broken down it sounds a lot better and the first of those is basically breaking down individual police stations i guess Mm -hmm. um and rebuilding them so they actually did Mm. this in camden um a number of years ago I, i can't say the exact year but they totally dismantled that police station and there, it was a police station where there was a ton of corruption, a ton of, um, I think, killings and just yeah. violence and, you know, really just bad stuff going on. Bad practices. And, yeah. And it was clear, like, okay, this isn't just a couple bad eggs, bad apples. It's right. a systemic problem. Let's basically start fresh, break it down, and then rebuild it from, you know, the inside. Sure. So they broke it down. They had officers reapply for the same jobs wow um so you know some people who, wow so they really just were like they t- they gutted it they gutted <laughs> wow. it and then they rebuilt it from the inside and basically they found that there was a really high success rate with doing that hmm. you know there was a lot less corruption um it was just a lot less problematic um and that was sort of one option now granted you don't know that that's gonna work in every city right. you don't know that that could even be implemented in every yeah. city Um, But just an idea that I've heard. And then the other thing that is really popular on kind of the signs that um, the protesters are holding up is to defund the police. And Yeah, I I saw that too. I didn't look into that so much. I'd love to hear about kind of what you saw about that. Yeah, yeah. So I think people get nervous about that because they think, what are we supposed to do without a police? Like they think that we're just going to take all the money from the police and you know it's gonna be anarchy it'll be anarchy exactly and it's really not that at all basically the idea is to take money that should um that was originally given to the police to bolster them and to create a stronger um more weaponized police force and use that money to rebuild these neighborhoods that are impoverished don't have the resources don't have the health care because the theory is, and I completely agree with this, crime isn't needless. People aren't just going around committing crimes mm-hmm. for the most part. I mean, you have some whack jobs, you have some serial killers, you got some bad guys. Yeah, but you're gonna yeah, you're gonna have that in any community. Exactly. Like, it's gonna happen anywhere. Yeah, but in these poor communities, it's need based crime. Mm-hmm. It's people don't have the resources that they need, so they get those resources by committing crimes like, you know, theft or you know, people get held up in basically, a, you know, a shooting um, situation because they're arguing over resources. Right. Um, so basically the money would be taken from the police 
and you know put into these other areas um and then it would create a stronger um, community where the police wouldn't be as necessary they wouldn't have to play god in the way that they've been forced to Mm. do because there just would be less crimes inherently because there'd be less need so i don't know just some interesting ideas that i've heard rolling around and it's it's really just fascinating to be part of this i think as white people, we're so privileged that we just get to, like, sit back and learn right. and, like, you know, try to do our part. And, you know, we've never had to experience racism ourselves, but we can just – we can learn about it. Yeah. No, I think it, it's a great opportunity for people like us to learn, sit back, and know when to even, like, the Blackout Tuesday, like, all right, <laughs> like, let's cut out the white voices for a moment mm-hmm. and let the people that are actually affected – you know, take a stance. But I think what you're trying to say, too, is that it's a super interesting time for us to be able to learn. But it's also just like we don't we're not the ones affected. Like, yeah, it's the people that actually are affected that should be the ones kind of, I don't know, involved and, and their voices should be elevated during this time. So, right. Yeah, exactly. And we're here to kind of pave the way for them I mean and I've heard it said a lot of times that even at the actual protests or the rallies it's the position of the white folks in those groups to be they're the guests you know like they are the guests of the black folks right and it's your job to not create unnecessary unrest to not create um to not put yourself in the spotlight but to more put yourself between black bodies and the cops yeah there was keep them safe. there was actually a really powerful um i don't know where it was probably on instagram somewhere clip of just where you know a line of police officers and there was a black individual that had gone up and i don't i think he was kneeling maybe and had his arms up and one white individual came up from the crowd behind him and stood in front of him and then several others and it's just kind of like using that privilege to build up what's right right thing yeah and to protect those black folks i mean because i've heard it said a million times you know if a white person gets killed then you know hell's gonna be raised and unfortunately these killings of black people just happen constantly i mean i remember kind of saying to you and just saying to people in general like wow I don't know if it's increased lately or if it's just an increase in reporting but it just feels constant and I just the last couple years for sure yeah and we just I mean we can't imagine what it's like to live in fear the way that the black community does and there's no reason for anybody to live that way and it's just it's sad that it had to come to this and this year like 2020 um that it had to be this late in history for all of this to come to a head but it's great that it is and you know i just you know we stand in solidarity with those black folks who have been so badly treated for so long yeah well so this is something i've been thinking about too um in 1919 actually so almost 100 years ago there was an event it's just crazy because you just see history repeating itself Um, There was an event called Red Summer where there were multiple protests across the U.S. that were 
it's just a similar situation where it's just kind of like a build up, a build up, a build up. And then one event tips something off like the death of George Floyd here. Um, and in the summer of 1919, there are protests and more so killings and lynchings because of especially the power dynamics back then. But the event that set things off was actually in Chicago of all places. Um, it was a like a not set but kind of understood separation in the swimming areas for black and white swimming areas and one black individual was perceived to have crossed that barrier and yeah it it just I forget whether it was he was drowned because it was just I should have looked this up before this um this episode but it pretty much was just kind of like that set off this insane kind of uprising in in chicago in philadelphia in um in all the big cities just like we're seeing today and to me it just really struck me because it's like the summer of 1919 the summer of 2020 like it just it's eerie and it just is i don't know it just is really crazy to see a hundred years later kind of the same thing still happening right yeah well, I guess to the point and to the theme, um, obviously because it is Pride Month, we wanted to do a topic today that centers around the LGBTQ community, but we also can't possibly avoid the history that's unfolding. We are a history podcast, obviously, um, and there's history going on right literally outside our doors. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to kind of combine the two um both black history and lgbtq history into this week's topic which is the new jersey four right or the killer lesbians as some oh my god them. yeah so many oh crazy savage names that were given to these women um yeah so we've got uh several individuals involved we have patrice and venice mm. i believe um they with... became friends because their names rhymed, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're Patrice, I'm Venice. So looking just back into their history. Um, so I don't actually, before we kick this off, I don't know if you, did you watch the documentary? No. It was interesting to see these women, excuse me, and see their relationships with each other um, and see some of the footage as well. But um, so we have Patrice and Venice who knew each other since they were two years old. So they were longtime friends. And then we also had Renata and Tureen. Um, And these were the New Jersey four. And the main players in this lovely story. Yes. So the story starts uh, pretty much in August, on August 18th in 2006 in good old Newark, New Jersey. Beautiful. Yes. We had seven women who were lesbians who, I have to say, after watching this documentary, were so supported by their their families and Aww. even just, like, their local communities. They were just... How great is that? It was funny because, well, so Renata was... This was super interesting to me. Um, Renata, her mom actually came out as gay and ended up marrying another woman. Nice. Um, and she actually came out about the same time as Renata. And Renata was saying, so this was about when she was 20, and she was saying, like, no one had a problem with it. 
her brothers were, you know, totally fine with it. They even called her their brister, their brother sister. Like, Aww. yeah, it, it was just like, that's, that's who they are. Yeah, like, that. that's who they are. And um, I just loved how it sounded. Like, they, okay, so picture this like friend group i kind of pictured like a scene out of hey arnold like when they're all walking down the street together of like seattle or new york city wherever that was set and all in a line like you have these seven lesbian black best friends right and they're all walking down the street in greenwich village (laughs) oh my god all i can picture is the hey arnold in the middle of the street where they're in the jazz exactly so that's sort of what i pictured they're all going out for a night of fun night of clubbing um they're outside you know this ifc center movie theater in greenwich village and they're just bopping along and they come across this guy Dwayne buckle oh this guy who um was really just he claims he was just sitting around trying to sell dvds yeah sitting on a fire hydrant selling dvds like anybody does on a fun friday night you know Cat calling women, right? Cat calling women. So he made the mistake of cat calling the wrong woman, mm-hmm. and he kind of cat called Patrice. I yes, think. yeah, Patrice. Yeah. So he was sitting on his fire hydrant, and he said, <laughs> "You know, he cat called oh, God. You know, Patrice, and basically, Patrice kind of gave him a classic comeback of." Like, I'm not barking up your tree. I don't, I don't bat for your team. (laughs) Yeah. I'm gay. And you know, you're, you're really, yeah. Wrong team, buddy. Yeah. Crawling up the wrong Mm -hmm. hole here. Um, and you know, it's sort of disputed as to who escalated things. Yeah. He claimed that they were the aggressors and obviously their claim was that this was all Mm self-defense. And Dwayne Buckle says that. You know, the Patrice, the woman that he hit on, sort of smiled back. But then this other woman in the group kind of got in his face, called him cheap. I know. <laughs> made fun of his outfit. This was the funny. This was like, really? This is your defense? They apparently mocked his jeans and said he looked cheap. Right. Whoa. Which, good one. Hey. Wow. <laughs> right. And apparently he sort of responded to that insult. And then this big fight started. Where the group of lesbians claimed that Buckle said something to the, you know, started making crude gestures yeah. at them, you know, pointing to their like crotch and saying like, give me some of that, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, made just a bunch of crude comments, made some disgusting gestures. And, you know, they all told him, they're like, hey, listen, like, we're all gay. We're all lesbians. Like, leave us yeah, alone. Just back off. Yeah, fuck off. And supposedly, Dwayne Buckle threw a cigarette at them and got kind of violent and insulting, starts calling them the D word, you know, and says, makes the threat that he's going to F them straight. Yeah, well, essentially rape them, too. And after Mm -hmm. watching this documentary, um, at least one of the individuals that spoke on during this documentary had a history of violence rape violence in her background and so i can only imagine how scary that must have been yeah like regardless of whether you're with a group of people or not like somebody threatening you like that right i don't know so that whole threat kind of escalated matters and at that point things become physical and supposedly Dwayne buckle starts shoving the girls the women 
and um, eventually kind of tackles and starts choking Renata Hill, who you were talking about earlier with the supportive family. Right. And one of the other women, Patrice Johnson, I believe. Yes. um, Was really scared that um, Renata was going to die. She saw him with his hands around her throat. You're out with your group of friends and then you you see one of your friends pretty much on the ground being suffocated. Getting choked out. Yeah. And so... She did the only thing that any reasonable person would do, reached in her bag, grabbed a steak knife that she had there, and cut him. Well, so before, just right before we get to this kind of moment that, you know, sets everything in motion, um, I did want to say, too, after watching this documentary and seeing the um, surveillance footage, it was interesting. There's this one man that they call the uh, mysterious man in the pink shirt. <laughs> and I think it was Patrice was interviewed saying that, and you can see him on the footage where he's kind of walking by with maybe another individual and he's like, Hey man, you're, you know, fighting women, you know, you're fighting a girl. Like, what, what are, are you, you doing? doing? Yeah. And he's like, if you want to fight someone, fight me. <laughs> and this guy goes after him. Buckle goes after him. And, um, he kind of, tussles with him or whatever and and you know gets away and i guess keeps moving um but i wanted to say too something that was really oh just like difficult to see in this documentary was um how this individual uh dwayne buckle had pulled out one of the women's dreadlocks ouch yeah that's right i didn't hear that and i saw a crime scene um uh, photo and you could see like the the di- the dreadlocks kind of in different locations Ugh. on the ground and it just was like so painful oh my god like yeah the uh, amount of force uh, that you had to use to rip that out it, like, yeah you really want to i don't know just say who's the aggressor and who's not right know. exactly yeah, it's pretty insane Ugh. so i guess that there also it was disputed as to whether um the person who cut Dwayne Buckle was this intervener in the pink shirt right or was actually um Patrice Patrice oh my god I'm like Patrice Lanise Shanice I know (laughs) (laughs) um so we didn't know who it actually was for sure based on you know conflicting testimony yeah and and so the incident as well like it lasted four minutes which if you think about that like just take a second back and think about four minutes that had to feel like a lifetime like, I can only imagine kind of fighting with somebody and being fearful for your life for yes. four minutes. That that's is a, a long, long time. Yeah, that's a really long time. Absolutely. Yeah. So our uh, just to set the tone, our buddy Dwayne here um, was saying that this was a hate crime against, against straight, straight men, men, which was hysterical. All right, <laughs> and this kind of cracks me up from the lens of, you know, there's a lot of different speech going on right now about racism and quote-unquote reverse racism and you have a lot of white people who are feeling empowered to say things like well all lives matter oh yeah 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 well you know I've been you know people have been racist against me because I'm white and it's sort of something like this it's like Dwayne Buckle's (laughs) argument because it's like really you've been 
you've been disenfranchised because you're a straight man. It's going to okay. buckle under pressure. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Dwayne, you're going to buckle. And don't buckle those pants because this argument has no legs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Ugh, yeah. Um, so pretty much um, I'll just give a brief on his injury. So um, he was stabbed in the abdomen and um, his liver and stomach were Whoa. severed. But I will say, and they they showed this in the documentary as well, um, they showed footage of him after he had been stabbed, and I believe he grabbed um, the hair, like the wig of, of another woman that wasn't featured in this New Jersey 4, which I will probably, you know, kind of get into how things broke down. Um, but he's still walking around kind of like waving. waving. Yeah. And Ooh, like, like a trophy. Yeah, like he... And you'll come to find later in the in the court case that this was not a life and death situation stabbing. And he, oh, there's so many problems with it. So yes. yeah, let's get into the court case. Oh, 100%. So basically, um, we got Buckle on the stand mm-hmm. and he sort of says, I don't even know which of these women that I was hitting on at the time oh. because I, I was sort of insulting them from the sidelines. Oh, I thought one looked like an right. elephant. I thought another looked like well, a no, man. No, no. There was one that he thought, ugh, I don't know, ugh. was attractive or whatever. Like, okay. She right. was okay. Oh, my gosh. All right, Dwayne. And he claims that his only physical reaction to this whole attack was to put his hands in front of his face, right, in self-defense. Oh, my God. Now, meanwhile, the defense pops in and says – you know, we've got some surveillance footage. Basically, it shows that Buckle is on top of a woman with yeah. his hands on her throat. Yeah. You- which is exactly the story that the women told, which turns out to be the correct story. Um, it, it So, again, I'm just going to say, in this documentary, hearing... I didn't see him on the stand. Um, I assume he may have requested his face to be not featured. Um, but you could hear his voice describing the incident with the surveillance footage. And they questioned him being like, is that you with your (laughs) hands on this woman's neck? And he's like, I don't know what that is. I don't know who that is. Uh Like, and I'm just like, are you serious? Like, Like, really? It's you, buddy. Yeah. Like, come on. And then, you know, the, the prosecutor was like, all right, well, is that you? Like, and it's like, yes, fine. Yes, that's me. So whether or not you know who that is or what that is in your terms, you know, you're, you're choking somebody right exactly Ugh. so basically the other weird thing was the knife right they didn't find any blood on it i didn't see this about the knife what's yeah there was just a note that i saw that said um like once the police officer got hold of the knife that um patrice used to stab Dwayne, yeah. um, it said that there was apparently no blood on it. Ooh. And then, <laughs> <laughs> um, and but the other weird thing is, wait, let's see. That's interesting. Yeah. And when, so when the prosecutor stepped in, they saw a video that showed Patrice basically, th- there's this big fray, you know, this big melee, like where yeah. everybody's kind of like, I just picture like a cloud of dust and like arms and legs. There's a bunch of, of people. Thing. I will tell. Yeah, after there's a lot of it, people. there's a lot of people involved. Yeah. So I sort of picture, according to the description of this video, 
that Patrice sort of steps backwards and out of a cloud of dust, grabs <laughs> her knife style. out of her, it's like a cartoon, <laughs> grabs her knife out of her bag and then kind of hops back into the group attack. That's actually very, yeah, that's what she said. Yep. It's crazy. So basically what ended up happening is Patrice is the only one who got charged with attempted murder. Yeah, she was the one that was in there the longest and watching this documentary, watching her family talk about, um, and this, I should have been more specific with the different charges, but um, the longest charge before Patrice was eight years. And so her mother seeing that charge was like, oh God, well, she's going to be in there for at least eight years because she's going to be the one you know, that's charged with the the highest, um, the biggest charge in this case. Right. And you know what else was interesting? How about the all-white jury? Which, okay, and also, we are not located in Mississippi in 1950. Like, we are in New York, New Jersey in 2006. I'm sorry, you can't find... An actual jury of your peers. Right. Exactly. (laughs) All white. And it was 10 women, two men. They only deliberated for five hours. Oh, that makes. Oh, right. Which is short for those of you who don't know. And finding every single one of the four women um, guilty of second degree gang assault, which I didn't even know was a thing. Yeah. I guess it is. Yeah. This charge was interesting. Yeah. Apparently like a very kind of nuanced charge that they were, it was all filed under. Right. Um, so when they went to trial, they were sentenced from anywhere for the four were sentenced anywhere from three and a half to 11 years. Mm -hmm. I think Patrice was the one that was the longest because yeah, Patrice was 11 years. Yeah. Okay. Here's the storyline that, like, gives you hope that you hang on to through this whole thing was Renata again. Um, So her mother was the one that came out as gay around the same time. And um, Renata was herself a mother at the the time that she went away to jail. She had a son named TJ. and um, DJ. Yeah. Not DJ Tanner. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Stephanie how rude Um, and I believe he was living with Renata's mother who here's the sad part Um, Renata's mother passed away and she was in jail at the time she had already been convicted and Renata's wife answered the phone she was asking Renata was asking for her mother and her wife was like she passed away Um, so sad and so I can only imagine like that must have been like yeah just and so that obviously she kind of went into shock after that and while in prison she was diagnosed with ptsd um this was obviously a big factor in that because she just kind of went catatonic after hearing her mother passed away and i i just i can't imagine being so disconnected from your family and society that like all right great i got i got the news over the phone now what am i like what am i supposed to do i can't go go anywhere i can't talk to anyone like it's crazy um but yeah so her son actually ended up in foster care and not to give away the ending but there is a happy ending oh give it away girl well she does end (laughs) up getting um custody back of him um his name again is tj and I don't know. If you watch the documentary, it is just so heartwarming because he is so 
happy to be back with his mom. He slept um, in her bed for the first two months back. This just like breaks my heart because like he she said he slept in her bed for the first two months back because Aww. he just would wake up and be concerned like like are you th- like are you there still are you gonna leave me again um but then it was kind of funny seeing I don't know he's probably like 10 9 10 11 um in this documentary and she's like yeah now he's fine and I can't even you know convince him to you know spend any time and you know, come and lay with me in my bed or whatever. Um, so he's clearly well adjusted and, you know, happy to be back with his mom. But, Cute. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I've got some stuff on um, kind of the media coverage. Yes. And so we were just talking before we started recording about the media and how it's so skewed what you get once it finally, you know, trickles down from the original kind of recording or production and it comes down to the viewers or the listeners and you just don't know a lot of the time what you can trust and a lot of it is very inflammatory a lot of it kind of gets you riled up and you don't really um, know all the facts but you feel very impassioned and in one way or another because that's sort of you know, the media's job is to get people excited about the news and to get people well, invested. And the 24-hour news cycle, too. You've seen it more and more recently um, where they don't have all the facts and mm-hmm. they're reporting it as if they do. Right. And then they come back and kind of correct the facts. But at that point, the false narrative is already out there. And that's right. kind of what, you know, everyone's going with. Exactly. And there's just this sensationalism where you don't feel like the emphasis is on finding the deepest truth the emphasis is just on finding the most sensational dramatic story that you can and I think we've seen this played out kind of um with these protests um slash rallies with the looting the destruction of buildings etc um a lot of the time the focus by the media is just on all of the destruction that has occurred as a result of these protests when in reality the focus should be on the movement itself well and and if you look at the like majority of the week i i was astounded by the number of people that were here in philly Mm -hmm. two days ago i guess it was on saturday a couple blocks away from me totally peaceful and just like the crowds were phenomenal and it Mm -hmm. was such a movement and yeah that gets coverage too but i think like you said the focus is always kind of on this hectic, right, you know. sensational, yeah. like craziness. And a lot of the time, as we've also discussed, the violence or the damage, the destruction isn't even by the people who are part of the movement. Yeah. It's by these crazy groups who are, you know, just there to rile people up. Yeah. yeah, they've got their own um, skin in the game. They want to make things look a certain way. So they come in and start wrecking stuff and getting people fired up and um it's just not the truth of this movement which is that the majority of these protests have been peaceful and that it's you know we've really come a long way um not to mention there's the whole (laughs) like the hilarious um what do you want to call it it's hypocritical how we seek this order and calm in a movement that's decentralized and has risen up pretty spontaneously when we don't expect the same things from a an organization that's 
got tons of backing. Ooh, look at this comment. Right? That is a great Funding, there. all of that. I mean, Whoa. somebody made that comment, and I was like, oh, my gosh. That is so true. It's so completely true. Like, why are we expecting perfection out of this group of people who Whoa, doesn't even have a centralizing force? Right? And, like, yeah, you know, so if true. there are a couple, you know, mishaps or a couple episodes of violence or destruction – it's like, oh, wow, this is God, a destructive, that, horrible no, movement. that's so true. Like, think mm-hmm. of trying to organize thousands of random people. In a peaceful way. And with no centralized kind of, we're leader. just all hoping that they're all coming here with the same objective that yeah, we are. Yeah, and good intentions yeah. and everything. Oh, that's, whoa, that is such a good point. And it's also kind of, it's like a flip side of the bad apple argument because yeah, yeah. basically in these rallies, in these protests, you have some bad apples who a lot of the time, like we've said, aren't even a part of the movement, a part of right. the protest. They're there with their own um, stake in the game, their own MO. Um, and those are kind of the bad apples. And that those are the stories that the media seizes oh, on. But then when it comes to the police and to – um, that whole system, that whole organization, the bad apple argument is used so often mm-hmm. in order to kind of um, like bolster forgive, that. yeah, these acts by corrupt police officers. Right. Yeah, it justifies it. Yeah, totally perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I'm like Jesus Christ, to... I'm brain yeah. dead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but meanwhile, that's not the real argument because it's the system that's corrupt rather than the individuals. I think the craziest thing, and I I can't help but relate this all back to kind of what we all experienced um, this past week. It was just really crazy to see. So I went back to my parents, um, not this past weekend, but the weekend before uh, when the protests all started and I'm back out there and suburbs and the good old burbs. Um, and we're talking about this and my sister and I are both on Twitter looking up like the most recent, like what's actually going on. And it's just, I really want to see what's going to happen in the next like 10 years with media reporting because Mm -hmm. yeah, we have the news, but like I had a hard time finding live coverage of the protests that are just a couple blocks away from me here. Right. And I went to twitter which i am not you're the phenomenal social media person here but in general like i've i never use twitter and that is where i have been glued to for the past week for the most recent updates on what's actually going on from people that are actually experiencing it and are there on the ground so yeah and social media has really taken like a step up it has become the news it has become the voice of the people it's really and it's accountability too that's yeah. like that's was really a, a game changer i think is that like all right fine the police are gonna do what they're gonna do but like there's gonna be a camera on them mm-hmm. throwing tear gas or shooting rubber bullets into defense like Ugh, which smacking by the way some, like they're ridiculous and that's the stuff that's come out in this past week and oh i don't I know. know it's just it's it's a totally different game than it was during this time like even 10 years ago exactly and so meanwhile to bring it full circle the media coverage of this incident of the um new jersey four was totally sensationalized oh my god um they called it the attack of the killer lesbians they called them 
um, the seething septet. There was um, citation of the case in the village voice where they basically talked about how rap culture um, sort of affected these young black lesbians and like forced them to commit this heinous act then the o'reilly factor actually ran a segment (laughs) that was entitled violent lesbian gangs a growing problem and pretty much you know they described the incident totally from Dwayne buckle's point of view um they talked about this whole national underground network that like is actively recruiting kids as young as 10 years old if you can picture this this. i know all this is like this is up my conspiracy theory alley right this is the most laughable oh it's so silly (laughs) and basically how they would find other gay people called it this homosexual recruitment and basically it talked about there are these gangs all throughout the city and all they want to do is hurt people and this that and the third when meanwhile this was an isolated incident it was seven best friends just out for a night of fun who got involved with this guy and you know basically the southern poverty law center came out against the o'reilly story they said it was totally a bunch of bs um and talked about how um your you factor know, was incorrect exactly and you know the gay city news stepped in too they said you know that there were all of these different factors of the um incident that were totally ignored like the fact that buckle ripped the girl's hair out of her head oh that yeah so disgusting that detail to me and seeing the footage like seeing the photographs of her of her hair on the ground is just Oh, like, I can't imagine. And you also have to wonder, like, what um, what are the mindsets at play and what are the goals at play? So this LGBT youth advocacy group called Fierce. Oh, yes. Um, F-I-E-R-C-E actually basically turned it on society and said, you know what? These women are just being prosecuted and this story is being blown up so that the West Village can get gentrified because Mm. they're trying to make it look like this dangerous area that's a hotbed for these gay um, gangs, which is so ridiculous. Like, oh, my goodness. Um, But basically, you know, it was like this popular theory by racists, anti-women, anti-LGBTQ, anti-youth. All of these people were like chomping at the bit with this story because it just consolidated all of those different stereotypes and all of those different um, persecuted groups. Right. Yeah. And it's another like it's people jumping on um, a narrative. Narrative is apparently the word of this episode. Um, <laughs> jumping on a narrative. Me, I can't find my Ugh. words. I'm having like word searching no, difficulties. Trust me. Oh, my God. C.A.T. Cat. <laughs> um, but it was pretty much groups jumping on what they could use to work in their favor where they wanted to buy property and wanted to do certain things it's just it's it's all manipulation and it's all mm-hmm. kind of jumping on this story to use it how these individuals want to so that they can like you said gentrify the area and um it just i don't know it just is crazy again looking back what this was like just about 15 years ago yeah which is not long right and it's just like so much has changed and so much hasn't Mm -hmm. but at the same time the way that the media portrayed these women 
and like they were this like literal zombies or yes. you know werewolves or whatever like they called, yeah, them they the called wolf them a wolf pack, pack right it's hilarious right a gang is tough of na- a, a gang of four tough as nails lesbians like, <laughs> which sounds Jesus cool as Christ. fuck i mean yeah they like, should have made jackets i was just gonna say that <laughs> and oh we should make God. jackets yeah they should do the thriller like right <laughs> exactly we're lesbian killers <laughs> in the night nice oh my god oh yeah it's just insane because i don't know i'm a big how many times can i say it but a big true crime fan and looking at the media with the jean benet ramsey case Uh it just is the same type of thing where you can see just how much the media regardless of what you think like the media can just take a story and run with it yes and make you think anything they want make the public do anything they want in this case you know um driving white people into the cities out of the cities i mean it's just crazy the power that they have as the news and you know i mean to jump off of that the power that you know donald trump people who say fake news etc have when they discredit the news right because if you can't trust the news then who are you going to trust yeah yeah but that's kind of goes back to what i was saying too about something's evolving right now that we're Mm -hmm. part of with like the whole twitter movement and i saw some things during the protest where individuals that were more independent news reporters they weren't your abc cbs nbc reporters on the ground um may have had their press badges or or whatnot but were still arrested during the protests and everything um but i i think you're seeing a lot more independent resources Mm -hmm. and even like twitter like i said where it's just kind of your everyday average your everyday joe on the street where you're getting your news from people that you can trust mm-hmm. and that you can pretty much see what's going on minute by minute there. Yeah, so for I yourself. Think, I think it's totally changing, and I think it's a good thing, honestly. Yeah, I completely agree. But um, So I thought it might be good to close on some – I mean, it's a little bit sad, but um, just some CDC um, stats. Reality, yeah, it's know? a sad reality, and I think it's just important for us to know – um, how important it is to support the gay community during Pride, especially, um, because they are at risk for certain things and a lot more at risk than straight folks. So let's jump into it. Um, so this was from the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, um, and it was it found for lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, 44% of lesbians and 61% of bisexual women actually experience rape physical violence or stalking by an intimate partner and for straight women that's 35 percent so it's about a 10 percent increase both of those are concerning but wow yeah both concerning which is sad in itself um how about this one 26 percent of gay men and 37 percent of bisexual men experience rape physical violence stalking by an intimate partner um compared to 29 percent of straight men god so, again, just a little bit of a jump there by about the same amount. Yeah. Um, then 46% of bisexual women have been raped, which is oh compared to 17% of straight women oh and 13% God. of lesbians 
Oh my god. Go lesbians. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) oh my god though. That But that is really disconcerting and strange. Um, and just sad. So it turns out forty percent of gay men and forty seven percent of bisexual men experience sexual violence other than rape. And for straight men it's only twenty one percent. So that's about double. And then if we're going to transgender stats in 2015, it was found that 47% of transgender people get sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. Really oh my sad. God. Um, that's half. Yeah. Crazy. I know. That's like, that's what my mind is just rounding these numbers up. Like, right. wow. And if we're talking about people of color, this is really sad. Oh, and yeah. obviously there's a huge jump. But for American Indian, 65%, oh multiracial, 59%. Middle Eastern, 58%, and Black, 53%. Respondents of the 2015 transgender survey were most likely to have been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Oh, my God. So, American Indians. Wow. And then nearly half of bisexual women who are rape survivors got – this is super sad, too – got raped between ages 11 and 17 um but i think this is just super important for people to know so that we can provide support um it sounds like 85 percent of victim advocates that got surveyed reported having worked with somebody who was lgbtq um who's a survivor who actually got denied services because of their sexual orientation or gender identity um so that's just really sad um and since there's such an epidemic of sexual violence against lgbtq people it's really something that we all have to work together to address yeah so um a really wonderful resource is the national sexual assault hotline um and they can also refer you to a local rape crisis center if that's needed that's going to be 1-800-656-HOPE h-o-p-e which is 4673. It's a 24-7 hotline, or there's online counseling at ohl.rain, R-A-I-N-N, that's two N's, dot org slash online slash. Um, well, I think it's just important for us to focus on um, the Black Lives Matter movement, especially during Pride, because the movement has to be intersectional in order for it to really work for everybody. And I think it's really cool and um, pivotal to remember that Pride was actually started by a riot, which was initiated by a trans sex worker of color. Yeah. So I wanted to get all those statistics down there. That's right. Um, But Marcia this P. never Johnson. would have happened if it weren't for our MPJ, <laughs> Marsha yeah. P. Johnson. Oh, my God. Why don't we have a shirt like that? Like I RGB? <laughs> ah, my goodness. And I have or to RBG. say, too, um, a friend of mine is selling um, crafts for people who hate white supremacy and love the Black Lives Matter movement. She's selling necklaces, masks, and other accessories, and 100% of her sales go to nonprofits. It's a really no cool way. thing. It's on Etsy. Oh, that's so, so cool. And yeah. That's, that's, yeah, I love that. That's such like a local, close-to-home way to be a participant. And, yes, and basically, yeah. since 100% of their sales go to the nonprofits, that's awesome. you can basically feel like you just donated all that money right. and still get something really cute. Yeah. She has the cutest COVID masks. They have headbands. They have actually a sign 
um, a poster of Marsha P. Johnson. It's a really cool print that says No oh, Pride. Whoa. Isn't that cute? That is really It's adorable. Good it's too. No Pride for Some of Us Without Liberation for All of Us, which I just think is adorable. So their Instagram is Nola, N-O-L-A, Crafts for a Cause. And their Etsy shop is Nola Crafts for a Cause. And again, that's N-O-L-A, crafts c-r-a-f-t-s for a cause c-a-u-s-e and again all these buyers keep coming back multiple buyers i'm came gonna to this say shop. that is some talented artwork it's so there. much fun i just bought the cutest coasters from them that have these little vaginas in them and they're sparkly it's so fun oh i think they just put another pair <laughs> after we wrap up this episode i actually really want to look it's through so this <laughs> i love it um, I'll have to show you a picture. And I already put them on our Instagram because I think they have the cutest stuff ever. Well, we'll and tag them again. Please yeah, we'll do. tag them again and keep tagging them because they're such an adorable organization. So buddy okay. of mine. I have to say too that that picture, that artwork of Marsha P. Johnson is awesome. Yes, it is like, that is really good. And I think they're still available, which is really cool. So I really um, like definitely that. check out Nola Crafts for a cause. Um, they are a great little Here we go. pop-up Just type a of close thing. to home way yeah. to participate and donate and support. Very cute. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, our Instagram and Facebook are at Betsy Boss Podcast. Our Twitter is at Betsy Boss Pod. Our website is BetsyBossPodcast.com. And if you'd like to email us, we are at BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.